it's it's great really is good to be here i didn't <laughs> i was thinking i was cursed or i was i was cursing you guys or something because every time i was come, scheduled to come here water was coming and, uh, and then i met a brother here who was in Korea uh, last week and there was a typhoon he got here just in time for the hurricane so I realized it was him and um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> oops and so the what what I want to talk about today is something that um, uh, my life has been I'm, I'm a church planter I, I even though I, I led church planning until this last year for North American Mission Board my um, I, my my heart is a church planter and I'm back at it again even and um, and so I've been watching and I've been learning every time I planted a church I've planted different places every time I've planted a church I've I've learned something and uh, and so uh, I remember when I was planting a church in Toronto I was watching um, people come from the south or the Midwest and try to plant in Toronto and get nowhere and um, and and I remember I was telling a story of one I won't give the name but one guy who was a very notable church planter who had planted several churches um, in California and all of them grew to over a thousand people and um, and he came to Toronto and he doubled his his um, output of what he did in California he doubled it in Toronto because he knew it was going to be harder and for his Easter launch service he had one Mandarin lady and, and he was doing marketing at 50,000 pieces, things like that. And um, he was doing everything, social media, everything you could think of for, for planning a church. In, and he got nowhere. And, uh, and so I began to um, construct this, this um, typology that I'm going to go through with you on napkins <laughs> and uh, there's lots of in fact when it became a book later I had a lot of uh, a lot of people bring their napkins say can you sign my napkin because <laughs> I remember when you were going through this thing here but uh, but uh, so this was a napkin with a lot of church planners in Toronto who were banging their heads against the wall going um, why are we not sort of gaining anywhere and um, and so I just I'd like to start there because this is kind of a baseline from that I'm going to talk in the next room at a little uh, different level maybe in terms of um, of the implications of that in a in a secular missiology in North America but for today or for this morning um, there's gonna be a little more of my story and it's hopefully a little more color that if you go into the next room it'll make more sense perhaps and uh, and so let's just go ahead and start and who's running you got okay thanks Chad and uh, so first of all how many of you love the book of Acts I mean you can't be a church planner and not love the book of Acts I mean it's it's the the Bible. <laughs> I was going to kind of never mind <laughs> for church planners, and um, and I've preached through the Book of Acts numerous times. In fact, almost every time, uh, I'm doing something different right now. I'm actually preaching through the Sermon on the Mount to start, and I thought I want to get a different culture. But but usually, I pre when I start a church, I preach through the Book of Acts, and um, and and I don't re recycle my messages often. Most of the time, I'm trying to be fresh. And I was getting ready for the very first sermon, the last time I did it, and I was getting ready to hit Acts chapter 1, verse 
eight, right? That's that's the you know charge mission, blah 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 blah. And um, I was getting ready to tee this thing up, and um, and I couldn't get past Acts chapter one verse three. And uh, go ahead and put that up there. It, look at this. It says, after his suffering. He, Jesus, showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He peered to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, this just kind of in your mind's eye, work your way back to that day. Um, these are the disciples, right? They heard Jesus speak about the kingdom of God. Ratio, he spoke, he, he mentioned in the Gospels the word church twice. And he mentions the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven 86 times. So we, we do it opposite. We, we do church 86 times and kingdom twice. And usually we have the wrong idea of kingdom when we talk about it. We, when something for our church doesn't work out, we go, well, I guess it was a kingdom thing. <laughs> we didn't see the results here, so it must have just been a kingdom thing. Jesus was saying, this, this is the most important thing, the kingdom of God. And, um, and so he gathers his disciples, or, <laughs> and for 40 days, he doesn't speak about evangelism or church growth or discipleship or disciple making or any of the other things that we say are the most important thing. He, he speaks about the kingdom of God. And, um, and going through the Sermon on the Mount, I'm just watching this thing come to life. You've heard it said, but I say to you, you know, this back and forth. And he's really, really just breaking out for his disciples right at the beginning what the kingdom of God is. And then you go and you look at the preaching of the apostles as, as, we, as it goes through the book of Acts, and you don't find them preaching church either. You find churches being started, but you find them preaching the kingdom of God over and over, teaching, revealing, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so you see the book of Acts starts that way. It's riddled all the way through the book of Acts that way. And you see in the very last verses of the book of Acts, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house, welcomed all who came to see him, and boldly, without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God. So... Um, for some of you, you're gonna, what I'm going to share, you're going to go, yeah, I think I've got this. And all this might be, this whole thing that I'm going to do is give you new categories and maybe some ways of expressing things that you've already thought or known. And for others of you, um, sometimes it, I'm just going to make you mad. <laughs> and I've made people mad, and that's okay. And Because um, I don't think I'm sharing anything that's not clear in Scripture, but it's certainly not clear in Christendom. And... Um, and so, when we see this, um, what does this mean? Well, I want to start with some assumptions that are counterintuitive to church, but they're very intuitive to Scripture. And, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit. I'm in there, sometimes, I'm, one time, <laughs> I'm, can you imagine? So, in, I'm Southern Baptist, and... Um, we have we sort of break things down in associations. So we have state conventions and we have associations, which are like mini little conventions. And um, and a state convention might have you know. So I'm in South Carolina, which is you know pretty conservative, and I've got um, sixty. Uh, directors of missions. So these are kind of like the, the the kind of little mini popes of their area, and um, 
and, <laughs> and, I, I, and I'm having this, this time with him. And I said, so where do we get our idea of church? And, um, you know, ABC question, elementary question, everybody knows the answer to that. Such a simple question that no one even wants to answer it, you know, kind of uncomfortable in the room. And um, finally, you know, the extrovert in the room can't handle the silence anymore. So he goes, the Bible. I go, all right, we get the idea from the church from the Bible. Um, okay, let's make correlations. What did your church do last week? Let's find the correlations to Scripture. And there's very few d direct connects. And, um, and I said, we didn't get our idea of church from the Bible. We got our idea of church from Europe. And we've exported it to um, America. And it's been tweaked. And, um, but, you know, the Reformation reformed uh, an already European idea of church that we have brought to us here. And, um, and you want to see the future of that church, just go to Europe and look at it. And it's not a very good future. And because uh, we don't get our idea of church from, from Scripture, we get our idea from a different idea. And um, so I, I want us sort of to go back to maybe where we should get our ideas of church from. And, and as a church planter, you know in your mind your goal is not to start a worship service. You know that, right? You know that, you know that, you know that. Even though everything we're, we're often taught in church planting in terms of how we gauge and measure success relates around a worship service. But you know that a church is not a worship service. And, um, and so this, this idea makes, has some implications. So here's some assumptions. Number one, at any given moment, I am either expanding the kingdom of God revealing the kingdom of God, or expanding the kingdom of darkness. Period. Now, let's let that sink in a little bit, because we don't want it that way. <laughs> For me, there's times where I know, you guys know, you know, you know, you know, that Christ has asked you to take this step of faith. And, and it was stupid and it was silly, but it was so clear you were supposed to do it. You took the step of faith and, um, and one of two things happened. The waters parted and you saw this miracle happen and you go, praise the Lord. Or you got shot down left, right and center and sawed in half. But you still knew the kingdom of God expanded because you knew you were following the voice of the Holy Spirit. You know those times, right? God won in your obedience. You also know times in your life where you know God has asked you to take a step of faith and it was clear you're supposed to take the step of faith and you rationalized your way out of it and you didn't. And you knew you were disobedient to God. And, or you knew God told you not to do something. And, um, and you said, you know, I'm going to do it anyway. And you knew that darkness came from that decision. But if we're honest, most of us don't think we live in either of those extremes most of the time. We, we think there's a third mythical gray kingdom in the middle. Um, this, the kingdom of the inconsequential. The kingdom of it doesn't matter. The kingdom of gray. And that's a great way to think. Makes life a little more convenient. But the Bible says you're either, what, for me or you're 
against me. Uh, there, there are only two spiritual sources that inspire my, my decision making. They're not equal, but they're very distinct. And, um, and there is no demilitarized zone. There is no DMZ in the spiritual life. Uh, whatever we do, whether we eat or we drink, how do we do it? We do it for the glory of God or we do it for ourselves. And uh, we're either for him or we're against him. We're either hot or we're cold. The stinking lukewarm is actually worse than cold. And, um, and so just sort of let that seep in a little bit. That in, in, in the Christian life, in your leadership, it's easier to look back and see it in history. It's harder to look back, look at today and see it, but we got to. And the decisions that I make advance one of two spiritual realms. My leadership advance, advances one of two spiritual realms, and there's never any decision I make that has no consequence. Do you believe that? I believe that. If we believe it, this next one's going to make some sense, and that is, it's possible to participate in church expansion and unintentionally, and I'm being gracious when I say that, be an agent for shrinking the kingdom of God or expanding darkness. It's We've spent the last 40 years learning something that is contra Scripture, and that comes from the school of church growth. School of Church Growth says, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. Pile as many people as you possibly can and keep them. Do whatever you have to do to uh, attract as many people and lower the discipleship cost, whatever has to be done. Entertain people, do whatever you have to do in order that you can win the battle of church growth. And, um, and everything that we're, we're doing, the decisions that we're making, are they... I'll give an example. Um, I'm in Texas, so I don't really want to do this, but I will anyway. Years ago, this is lots of years ago now, um, a European um, media outlet did a study. And their thesis was, in the past, Christianity benefited culture or society. In the past. But today... Christianity, there is no net benefit to culture or society. And, um, and they went to the most Christian urban area on earth, which was Dallas. More Christians, more churches, more ministries per population than any, any other city. And, um, and they started measuring social dysfunction, brokenness. Seeing homelessness, seeing crime, seeing addiction, seeing, seeing all the things that, that were there in Dallas. And then contrasted the statistics in that most Christian city to other cities around the earth that had, didn't have the Christian presence. And found it bumped around the bottom 20% of similar cities. And then they took their microphones and went to pastors. Many of them were from our brand, the brand I'm from, saying, you know, what do you do with these results that we, we you know, do found? And almost universally, the pastors said, it's really not my responsibility. My responsibility is my flock. That's my job, my flock. And, uh, and so, so here, here is a place where, where Christianity and, and Christendom is expressed in its highest point. 
and yet the kingdom of God seems to have little ground. And, um, and, and for, for definition, you want to write this down, you'll remember it, and it's simple. Um, how I define the kingdom of God is what things look like when Jesus gets his way. It's not very elegant, but um, I think it gets to the point. It's what my marriage looks like when Jesus gets his way. It's what families look like. It's what churches look like. It's what the environment looks like when Jesus gets his way. And, uh, and so here, um, we can see that it's possible to participate in church expansion and unintentionally, by the things that we have to do, um, expand darkness instead of expanding light. Let me, if, you, if those of you who got a little gray in your hair can remember a guy named Alan Greenspan. Um, worked for the Fed. He, he defined the 90s, the 1990s, as the era of irrational exuberance. And, um, and his, his reason for that was guys like me who had no training, no education, these new business shows were coming up on television, and they would say, hey, here's, a, here's WorldCom, looking good, look, this, this stock start here, and it's here now, and you know, it's, it's going up there, and, and, uh, and you, should, you should probably buy in, buy in. Here's Nortel, it's here, and you should, you should probably, you should get, and they gave us all these things that we're supposed to invest in, and all we heard was, share prices. It was an output, not the inputs, the outputs. We heard the outputs. And the output was here, and it should be here. Meanwhile, there was a dinosaur in Omaha, Nebraska, who lived in a small bungalow house, and he had an office. I'm sure it had a dial on it, and uh, name, named uh, Warren Buffett, who um, said, I'm not interested in outputs. I'm interested in inputs. He goes, I don't care about share prices. I'm looking at other things like profit to earning ratios. I, want, I don't want companies that you know, we're speculating on that they may turn a profit. I'm gonna invest in companies that turn a profit. And so he didn't buy WorldCom, he didn't buy Nortel, he didn't buy all the things that you know, guys like me bought. He bought Procter & Gamble. He bought diapers and soap and stuff like that. And, uh, and then, you know, who, who, who was laughing at the, at the end, you know? It was, it was the bit, so what is the inputs and the outputs in the church? Well, the outputs we measure in attendance, we measure in baptisms, we measure in all kinds of ways that we, and uh, in order to win that output as we compete in the church growth game, we'll do all kinds of things to compromise in order to get that, what we're looking for. Um, I was in a church, sad to say it was in this city, that brought, do you guys remember the strong men guys? You know, the ones that break things and roll things up? <laughs> And uh, so they had several campuses, this church, and, um, and they had the strong men going into all the elementary schools the week before, and then kind of doing their machismo you know, thing that they're doing. And, and then they had um, a week's worth of services on every campus. Uh, this is going to sound like hyperbole, or maybe it'll sound true. Maybe you've experienced this. I was gobstruck. I, I had never seen anything like this before. And... Uh, 
So they, they came to, I was on one of the campuses on one of the days, and the, the strongman guy got up there and, uh, and he said, all right, now, we, they start rolling up pancakes, like, I mean, wearing up frying pans like they're crepes, you know, and ripping off phone books in half and breaking things with their heads. And, and, um, and they were just, you know, got everybody all pumped up. And then one of the strongmen was the preacher. And so he's up there and he's saying, you know what? God doesn't want any wimps as followers. He he doesn't want wimps. He wants people that are tough. And uh, you can't be a wimp if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So when I count to three, I don't want you walking forward. I want you running forward. One, two. Wait, some of you guys aren't, aren't ready. Some of you aren't leaning forward. And, uh, and he got them all pumped up. And then it was one, two, three. Wah! The children came to the front. And they were just lined up. And I didn't see a broken heart. I didn't see a tear. I just saw excitement to be right close to these strong men. And then they marched them out from that auditorium to this triple gym where two chairs and one chair was like that. And they filled up this whole triple gym and they all were filling out cards and then went out from there outside and they had, a, had pastors in a baptismal fountain and, um, and they had microphones set up and they said, this is Juan and he is getting baptized today. Whoosh. Next. And, and I'm sure in our denomination, they were the top, the top uh, baptizer in Texas. I'm sure they were that year again. And, uh, and I was watching people from the church with tears going down their eyes thinking, this is so beautiful. And I felt nauseous thinking, what I'm watching here, all you've done is inoculate people. At some point, someone's going to share the gospel with them. And they're going to say, I'm good. I was baptized at such and such a church. Don't need it. Thanks. Not everything we do in the, to expand our church expands light. And um, third, it's possible to unknowingly value the kingdom of God before we acknowledge the source of the kingdom of God, that is King Jesus. Now, some of you who are hardline four point, five point Calvinists are going to go after me here. Um, we are created in the image of God. And in the fall, the connection that we had with God it was broken. Okay. But there was, there seems to be, and this residual wiring that that sparks and frickles, and 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 there seems to be a sense in in people that they're 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 desiring something of the transcendent. They're desiring something that makes uh, an eternal difference. The Bible says God has put eternity in our hearts, and yet we cannot fathom from the beginning to the end. There, there's a sense where. Um, I think where people are set, we're having a desire for something and they're looking at church and going, hmm, that's not it. And, and then there's a, a hurricane that hits a city. And, and for me, when I'm up in Toronto, I saw this happen a lot. Uh, when the big thing hit New Orleans, um, I, I, our, our guys would go to our neighbors and say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to go to New Orleans and help them. And we're going to take a convoy of minivans down there. You want to come? And, uh, and so we were taking our lost neighbors who t paid their own way, 
um, did their own vacation time and we went down there and they, they prayed at, for the first time at meals with us and they, we stayed in the hotel. They, we'd have a devotion and they'd go, well, that's weird, that's kind of neat. And, uh, and they experienced this. And by the time we'd done our work and then we convoyed our minivans back, most of those people came to Christ. And, um, but, but why would they come in the first place? Why would they want to be a part of that? When, when, that, when the earthquake hit Haiti, I had a good friend. I, I ride a motorcycle, and, and I, do, I do that in, in order to, to penetrate a, a, a group of people that I don't know how else I would. And, uh, and so I'm riding with all these lost guys, and, uh, and this earthquake hit. And this one guy who is an EMS driver said, I got to get down there. And it hit him in a way deeper than it hit me or anybody else. And, uh, and he went and, and arranged for a, a, a flight and all kinds of equipment from all kinds of uh, emergency services from Toronto to go and drop equipment over there. And he was on there on day two just as a, a, a work-a-day employee kind of guy. And he was there working away and serving away. And, uh, and I hooked him up with, I knew some missionaries that were working there. He ends up becoming a Christian in that process. But what would, what would cause that person to react that way and want to be a part of this, that solution? That's what I'm gonna, I want us to get at a little bit here. So, at any given moment, I'm expanding the dark, kingdom of darkness, kingdom of light. Um, there is no gray kingdom. There's only two. And they're not both kingdoms. <laughs> One's, there's only one king. There are two spiritual realms. And uh, it's possible that I, I do things that expand my church, but the very nature of what I do is contra kingdom. And if it's contra kingdom things that I do, how does, how does anything but darkness emanate from it? Three, that uh, there is a, there's a wide group of people out there who have an itch for the kingdom of God and they don't even know where it comes from or what to do with it. So let's take that as sort of the basis of what we're going to talk about. Now, we have um, forms and sources. Now, sources, we're talking about darkness and light, but we have forms we've got to deal with, pesky forms called sacred and secular. And, um, and we get those. We think they're meaningful. They might be in some cases, not always. Christians, your church members, they know sacred is good, secular is bad. That's how we've trained people for a long time. Sacred good, secular bad. Sacred good, secular bad. So they're teenagers listening to, to headphones, and, and you're hoping, what are you listening to? Christian music, right? Because if it's Christian music, it's good, and if it's secular music, it's bad. What are you reading? Is that a Christian book? Because if it's a Christian book, it's good, but if it's a secular book, it's bad. We, we're, we're used to that. But is it true? So you're driving down the road, and... Uh, you're listening, you know, it's, 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 it's a sacred car because, you know, God gave it to you. And um, you're driving there, you're keeping the cruise control at 60 miles an hour. You're not going over, you're not breaking any speed. This is a sacred place you're having here. You, you got the radio station tuned into whatever, whatever, Fish FM, you know, Christian stuff. And, um, and uh, 
you're, you're listening to this preacher preach and you're going, okay, we're going we're gonna to have a sacred time here. Or we're going down the road. We're sitting here listening. And all of a sudden, God sounds like he's a genie in the jar. You just rub him the right way and he owes you stuff. And you go, I don't know if I like this or not. And, and so you find another Christian radio station and uh, this one, you know, and you listen to Dove FM. And, and, um, and all of a sudden, you're hearing kind of a similar take on God. And you're going, shoot, I'm, I'm not liking this at all. And, and, and you, you just are kind of repulsed. And so you hit the button one more time and you hit Kiss FM 99. Light, light favorites of the 90s. You're Lionel Richie, you know. Say you, say me. You know, he's doing his thing there. And, uh, and you're, you're listening to Lionel Richie and you're going, gee, I'm having a little guilty pleasure here. I'm liking it. I'm not supposed to. It's secular. Bad Jeff, bad Jeff. But you listen. And, um, and you're, you're listening to Lionel Richie going, and uh, you're going, oh, your mind starts drifting back to, oh, I remember dating my wife. I remember, I remember that song. I remember, oh, man, I love my wife. Thank you, Father. Man, what a blessing she is. And you're driving away and you're, you're, you forgot even Lionel's even doing anything. And you're just praising the Lord, thanking the Father for, for this. And you get home and you don't um, go and you know, sort of lay on the couch and, you know, do your thing. What's for dinner, honey? You, you stop by the flower shop, not the grocery store, the flower shop where the, they last a couple days. And, uh, <laughs> and, and she loves yellow roses and you, you buy yellow roses for her and you look her in the eyes, and you hand them to her and say, honey, I was just driving and, and I just want you to know that you are my best gift to God other than my salvation. Ah, I love you. I love you. Th I don't tell you enough. Thank you for who you are. And together you cook dinner. And, um, and what just happened? The kingdom of God expanded because of secular music. So the idea here of these two of, of forms aren't really that important. Let's look at the sources and where these come together. Now, where the secular and the dominion of darkness come together, I call these, this group of people self-seekers. Um, go ahead and hit that button here. Look at this. Re you probably can't read this, but in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 4, I'm going to read this to you. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last day. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of God, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So does that sound like lostness to you? It does. So here, I, I call this group people here, like, have you ever watched Seinfeld? The whole point of Seinfeld was that when they wrote it from the very beginning, they followed, they followed a mandate. No hugging, no growth. They never hug and they never learn. In fact, when the very last episode, when they all go to jail, the very final one, they're just incredulously not understanding as, as the whole, all the seasons before sort of tried them for, for being bad people. They just can't believe it. Like, they just can't understand. And uh, so this is a picture of lostness, secular. But when the sacred and darkness come together, goes here and then has the next verse that says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. In other words, who was Paul talking about the whole time? He was talking about something that was sacred, <laughs> in a sacred space. 
And, um, and so the more important part that we have to, to think about here is when the sacred and the dominion of darkness come together, it isn't the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of my denomination. It's the kingdom of my church. It's the kingdom of my brand. It's the kingdom that I control. I'm the king. I call the shots. And, um, and it has nothing to do with light. It has everything to do with darkness. And in history, you can see it as plain as day. A little harder to see it when it's all around us. But for those who have eyes to see, they should see. When secular and the kingdom of God come together, I call these people kingdom seekers. I quote this already. He has said, Eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. There's this impulse. They're like homing pigeons wanting to find home, and, uh, but they don't know where home is. And, uh, and they're looking. And so, um, and where the sacred and the kingdom of God come together, call this kingdom expanders. Lots, lots you could do. But I, looked, I love Matthew 13, 33. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took, mixed in a large amount of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. Now, just using that metaphor, how many of you have a wife or a mom that bakes bread? Or maybe you bake bread. I should, that's very sexist. How many of you bake bread? <laughs> bad. Bad, yeah. And um, I don't bake bread, and my wife and mom did. So... Um, and they use these little yellow cans of things. Fleshman yeast. That's what we have in Canada. I don't know if it's everywhere. And uh, it's a little yellow can. You open it up and you look inside it. And there's little, little granule, nodule, little grainy things that I guess is yeast. I don't know what yeast is, but that, they say it says yeast on the outside and that's yeast. That's not the picture they had. The picture they had, when I was a kid growing up, there was this thing that went around churches called friendship bread or friendship dough or monster dough or whatever it was. But it was some kind of funky dough that, uh, that people ripped off a chunk and gave them to their friends and say, here, put some flour on that and then watch this thing grow. And this thing went from person to person to person, this infected yeasty thing that, uh, that you were supposed to, you have no idea where it came from. And, um, and it was now in your home and you were supposed to, you know, cook it and eat it and then put some more stuff in. And it was, but that's the picture Jesus is giving here. That's first century yeast. It wasn't this thing in a yellow can. It was this infected bread, this infected dough. And anything that touched it, it changed. The dough didn't change. It changed everything else. And, um, and so that's what Jesus is saying here. This is what the kingdom of God is. It's not something that changes. It, it's something that change, changes the exterior. So what I did in this, I'm, I'm going to kind of go quickly through this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. But I want to help us see how differently these four things look in real life application. Because they are as different as night and day. So when I go to, to talk about money or resources, the number one thing Jesus talked about was the kingdom of God. Number one illustration he used to talk about that was cash. And, um, and so for the self-seeker, the idea of resources is, is, is it's materialism, right? I mean, you used to be called a citizen. If you go back to even the 1960s um, and you look at how people addressed 
people, uh, politicians, you are citizens. You know how you're called now, what you're called now? Consumers. That's your value to the nation. You're a consumer. And um, that's who we are. And so, and so for, for the average person, not for, for many people, um, you know, they worked hard for their money and they're going to spend it on themselves. And any appeal to give any of it away is just silly. Not going to do it. Charitable giving, not going to do it. And there's a, whole, there's a whole group of people there that that's, that's where they are. They're, they're just materialists. Now, where it comes here, we have the same thing, but we have sort of a, a frock on it. We have a religious sacred clothing on it. And it's religious consumerism. We, um, we, we do whatever we do. And if I went like this, and I went and asked, asked some probing questions to many church planners in our network and um, say, okay, this is, this is the place you're trying to reach. This is the, the population of, um, of the city that you're trying to reach. What percentage of that population is um, going to church, is a born-again believer, is, is, is a disciple of Jesus Christ? And depending where it, where it was, but let's just, just throw that out here. What percentage of the greater Houston area would you say is a, is a disciple of Jesus Christ? Throw, throw the numbers out. None of us will be right. Just give it a shot. 5%. 5%? on a different number? 30. What's that? 30? Okay. So we'll split the middle and we'll go 15 so we'll say 15%. No idea. None of us know, but let's just say that's it. Um, now, 15% of, of the total population are predisposed that if you said you opened up your church, um, you know, they're going to come. If I went to and asked some probing questions about your strategy of what you're trying to do, um, I wonder how many things I'm going to hear about your strategy is designed to appeal to this market share? I wonder how many things it um, says, you know, the low-hanging fruit here, the easiest ones to get to make, a, to make this thing sustainable is, um, you know, the previously evangelized. And, uh, and so we're going to sort of go after, go after those. And so we, we go to outreachmarketing.com and we get the, the marketing stuff that says everybody else's church sucks, but mine's good, so come. And, um, and we tell the community that, you know, we're the one true thing. And... Um, <laughs> For this, this idea of religious consumerism isn't just for the churches with the family life centers and the bowling alleys. It's for church plants too. And, uh, and many, of it, many times we do things that are cloaked in, in, in sounds like evangelistic, but evangelism, but we really, really were not. The most, the most maybe we really oftentimes, some, as church planners with those strategies, are to go after the de-churched. And that's as, that's far on the margins as we go. People who have a memory that uh, they, you know, maybe we should come back to church, but we're missing the greatest potential and the greatest population. Here, when we have 
there's a there's a thing here where the where the kingdom of of God and um, kingdom seekers come together. And when they talk about money, they have a value. They wouldn't say it this way, but it's, it's spiritual reciprocity. It's, it, they would take, they would use other words that would just make Christians cringe, like karma. You know, it's like you give to the universe and it comes back. And, uh, and that's not karma. Karma, that is what they have just said, you know, is not karma. Karma is this perpetual transmigration from one species to another species. I mean, you screw up in this life and you become a Rhodesian dung beetle in the next. I don't meet many of my neighbors worried about becoming a dung beetle. They, they use the word karma in more actually a Jesus-y kind of way. That uh, if, you, if you sow, what happens? You will reap. Hmm. Um, they're actually talking about something that is actually a biblical concept in this idea of spiritual reciprocity. If you do some good things, good things come back. If you do some, sow some bad things, bad things come back. And, and so they're talking about something that's just, just a little bit different. But here, this is the sacrificial giving away. This, this is what, how, how Christ followers live. In fact, I would, I, when I started the last church that we started, we had no money and we had no people. And so the, the vow was easy, but we've always made the vow. that uh, And vows are big words. They're not, you know, pledges. You know, it's, <laughs> I don't have a wedding ring. I left it in my hotel room. I was going to use that. And someone's actually going to fetch it right now. So it's kind of a bad thing. But, but uh, <laughs> the, the wedding ring is a vow. I mean, it, it shows a vow. It's so something that's very, very important. And um, for, uh, for us, we said, we made a vow to God saying, you know what? We don't own a person and we don't own a dollar. And, um, and so we will plant a church like this. And so I was sharing with my brother that when we planted church one, nobody, this is stupid, you should never do it. But God told us to do it, so I guess it wasn't stupid. We planted church one, and while we were planting it, we, planted two, we were planting two other churches simultaneously. And um, I mean, that meant, <laughs> what, what about critical, what about all the things, critical mass, all the things that are supposed to be so important in church planting, all the rules, that are, what about all that stuff? We weren't paying any attention to that because we were just following this path we sensed that God was asking us to, to, to lead. And, uh, and so lots of cool things happened. Like, here's one. Um, uh, what, what time do we have? 11 o'clock? What time are we supposed to be done? What's that? You go start there at 11.30, so you can go up to 11.30. Okay, well, I still, I got a lot. I got too many stories. I'll keep moving. And um, just, just, just suffice it to say, we gave people away and money away like, like crazy, crazy people. And God continued to bless and continued to bless and continued to bless. And, and, and for, for just a forewarning, those of you who have come to the point where... Um, when I say God blesses, the people, the pastors who say, if you give God your best, um, he will give you better back. All that tells me is that guy's never done it. <laughs> because my experience is when I give God my best, he gives me ones back, but they're nowhere near as good as what we gave. <laughs> 
and we got to disciple those guys back up and we finally get them to a place where they're worth something and then we have to give them away again. Anyway, that was free. And uh, how about energy? What, what makes us tick here? Um, this person here, what makes them tick is ego, right? So, so everything is on the surfaces. It's all, you know, the, however, you, whatever it has to be, it's on the, on the surface and uh, how, I, how I appear. It, that's what drives me. That's what makes me go here. For the brand expanders, it's competition. I know you know probably, maybe you don't know it, but I can tell you many of the pastors that you really think are awesome um, have been had, had to sign a non-compete clause that when they leave their church, they have to be so many miles or states away, depending what it is, because that church really is in competition with the other churches. And, um, and so there's this, this sense, of, that's what I love about what you guys are doing, I really do, about what, what's happening here in this network, this bring together, who is the competition? It's darkness, right? And your allies. And, uh, and so together, you guys are figuring out. Like, that's one of the things we're trying to do with our Send Network was to, was to help the planters say, you know what? Um, the, 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 the sense like when we're planting, you guys are outnumbered. I know in Toronto where I am, there's over 600,000 Muslims in Toronto. There's more Muslims in Toronto than evangelicals by far. And, um, and so if we start saying, I'm only going to play with a certain stri stripe of evangelical, I mean, that's silly. And, uh, and so I love what you guys are doing. Keep, keep doing this. I think Jesus smiles. I think more so, even more so than, you know, how we learn together, but how we collaborate on the ground. That, and, uh, and so if you are a, a church plant and you're another church plant that's close together and you're different denominations, but you realize that your neighborhood is going to say, hey, they must be with Jesus when together they're holding hands and doing things together. Uh, it's it's going to make a big, a big, big old statement in your neighborhood. And so, because they're not used to that statement at all, this idea of competition. Here, there is a sense of goodwill. I got to go to a U2 concert in um, Santiago, Chile, in a soccer stadium with 69,999 of my closest friends packed into this stadium that probably would seat 20,000 North Americans. I mean, we were just <laughs> on top of each other. And there's this Irishman uh, in the middle uh, speaking in broken Spanish with an Irish accent. Uh, uh, and, uh, and he was this, you know, evangelist about your lives uh, need to mean something. They need to count for something. And, uh, and, and it was just incredible to hear this Spanish audience resonating with this guy up there talking sorry, about this kingdom impulse that, that was there. And he was he had tapped into it. It was it was so there. I'm not talking whether or not where, where you think he is in the kingdom of God in terms of his relationship with Christ. Or I'm just saying he was tapping into something kingdom in the lives of the people that were in that, that stadium there. But ultimate point of energy is Jesus' presence, right? The Bible says where two or three come together, what happens? In his name, he is there. Man. If worship services, if you could give up, who, you know, my seeker focus, seeker friendly, seeker. If worship services were designed to worship Jesus, and um, and and fully and fully believe that Jesus is here with us, 
it would change everything we do in church. It would change how I preach and what I preach on, how I, how I react, how we react with one another. It would change everything. And so the ultimate idea is Christ's presence himself. There's so much I could talk about. But community, what does community look like here? There is none. It's isolation. They have no community. They don't, they're not vulnerable. They're not going to open up. They're not going to share. You, 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 they go to work. They come home. They hit the garage door. They hit it again. They go in there. They break up their home. They hurt, hurt one another. Then they go back to work again, pretend everything's okay. Repeat cycle over and over and over and over. How about when we get to the brand expander? It's the same thing. Because all we've done is put them in straight lines, as many as we could put in straight lines. There is no community. <laughs> you know, Bob and Janice all of a sudden are, are divorced. And I didn't see that. Could you see that? Come? I didn't see that come. Nobody saw that. They seemed like such a happy couple. And um, the idea, I, I, I was in uh, Greece last week in uh, Thessaloniki. And, uh, and I was with 90, no, sorry, 80, supposed to be 95, 86 countries where church planning teams were coming from 86 countries. And I got to, it was, it was heaven. And um, all different denominations, all different groups of people. And then, then we went to Philippi, which was like a two-hour bus ride. And I got to stand uh, literally on the place where Paul was sentenced in Philippi. And then I, and the, then I went into the, the jail where he was. There was two cells. And it was Philippi at height was only 10,000 people. So one of those two, Paul was in. And uh, where the place was shaken and stuff. And then when, when it went out, and you know, the Philippian jailer, and, and then, you know, the Lydia, Lydia and the river that went out there and was there. And, and just imagining that first community, how tight that must have been. You know, they were, don't kill yourself, jailer. Don't kill yourself. I'm here. I'm here. Everything's good. You know, the community that must have, they must have had in that first church. Paul loved that church. You know, he wrote that church in such a loving way, the book of Philippians. And uh, th this, is, this is this idea of church. But uh, for here, they get this a little bit better sometimes than we do over here. They have this, these, there's support groups that are going on all over your community right now where people are actually being honest with one another. They're, they're really unloading their baggage. They're telling real truths about themselves. And, um, and they're experiencing some kind of transformation that's happening in their own personality, in their own lives, in their own families, apart from Christ. They are sharing truth and they're allowing, allowing that to change, you know, the temporal limits that they're in right now. But where we have here, where the kingdom of God and the sacred come together, now we have an altogether something different. There, there is, this isn't competition, and this isn't isolation. This is interdependence. You know, I'm doing an experiment right now. I hate to use the word experiment, but I don't know what else to call it. Because I've been, I've been doing theory for a little while, and I'm tired of theory. And so I'm actually pastoring a church co-vocationally. And, um, and I've recruited four, four others, and all of us have full-time jobs. And uh, we're doing an APEST model. So I've got an apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher that, that we're doing. Everyone's got a full-time job. But with conviction, we're able to say to everybody, you know, follow us like we follow Christ. 
We're, we, we work full time. I'm going to be in Houston part of this day, part of this week, and I'm going to be, you know, but, but when we're, you know, you see what, how I'm serving Christ here locally. If I can do that, certainly you can do that. And, and, and the fact that we are forced to interdependently give leadership like that, it actually is, is actually a kind of a cool thing. It's, I've only been at this experiment now for three months, so I can't give you a big, big thing on it. But, um, there is a sense where community is interdependent. You know, I'm a Baptist. I'm talking, I spoke to a group that's a group of directors of missions, the little popes of the different areas, and, and said, autonomy, autonomy of the local church. Where do we get that? Everyone says, the Bible. No. In fact, we get its opposite from the Bible. We get interdependence from the Bible. When Paul writes to a city, he's assuming, you know, there's, there's, there's little churches that are meeting and, uh, and this letter is being moved around because the gospel was spreading rapidly, running, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3. It was, it was taking, taking off. And, uh, and so this idea of I'm the king of the castle, this is an autonomy, autonomy of the local church, isn't from the Bible. It's a historical reaction, a pendulum swing of history from one thing to another thing. But sometimes the truth of the where we're supposed to be in the middle of that pendulum swing, we just kind of miss it on our way by to the next extreme. And, um, and so when you begin to think about your city, as you're doing here, don't think in terms of autonomy of the local church. Think in terms of interdependence of the body of Christ. Some of you are strong in some areas. Some of you are totally weak in that same area. It's, you're strong in a different area. And if you latched hands and figure out how do we reach this community, it might be shocking what God can do. And the revival that could break out. Interdependence. Change. How does change happen? There is no change here. We just, you know, you get caught cheating with, on your wife. You just promise whatever you got to promise, manipulate whatever you got to manipulate in order to somehow keep things going. How does change happen here? It doesn't happen at all either. What do we believe? Well, here's our system of belief. Here are the things we believe. All right, I'll sign it. Yep, there, I believe all that too. Problem is, nowhere in the Bible is belief up here. Belief is always down there. Belief is never a noun. It's a verb. It's, it's something, we don't own it. We do it. We do beliefs. We don't know beliefs. And... Um, and so here we conform. Okay, yep, 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 yep. Check all the boxes, sign it, hand it in, member, conformed. And, uh, and somehow maybe we met that. <laughs> oh man, this is... I was with a Vietnamese house church pastor who pastored um, groups uh, of house churches in the most persecuted part of Vietnam. He had over 25,000 people in, under his sort of leadership. And he had spent more time in prison than outside of prison. For, for And I was with a, one of, a pastor from one of my tribe who I wanted to slap in a holy kind way, um, who kept pestering that guy and kept saying, you know, how do you ensure, you know, doctrinal orthodoxy for what you're doing here? And he answered him so many different ways. And he wasn't ever satisfied with the answer because it didn't fit in his paradigm. And uh, he kept asking him and asking him and asking him. I could tell he was frustrated. And he finally said, listen. This is what we do. We open the Bible. We read the verse. We don't read the next verse until everyone is doing this verse. <laughs> All 
right? <laughs> what? You mean you guys do that? Okay. And, um, and so here, change is this, this idea of transformation. And, uh, but change ultimately for the kingdom expanders is this idea of incarnation. Um, I love, there's different ways of thinking of the incarnation. The incarnation, obviously the historical, once in a lifetime, once in history, God becoming man and indwelling and living amongst us. But then there's Jesus in Matthew 25, what you've done to the least of these, my brothers, you have done to whom? To me. And so there's a sense where even as you minister, you're sort of ministering in an incarnational way because you're imagining that person that I am serving as I'm serving Jesus himself. Really kind of lifts the motivation of, of what I'm doing, doesn't it? It's not just this pesky person that won't come to an end, always is going to be. The poor you'll always have with it. How many times do Christians quote that one verse? And... Um, and somehow we miss, we miss the idea of actually serving Jesus. Authority. Who is the authority? I'm the authority. Who's the authority here? Corporate identity. This is, this is what we do. Here, who is the authority for a kingdom seeker? Listen to this one. God as I understand Him. Here's another one we as Baptists make fun of. God as I understand Him. We as maybe other denominations do too, but I know our de denomination does. You know what? What's, what is more authentic? The right doctrine and not living in obedience to that right doctrine or a very kind of lesser doctrine, but actually living in obedience to that lesser doctrine. And, um, and so sometimes you, you, you talk to a person who is this kingdom seeker and they have a wrong picture of God. It's not wholly, fully formed at all. And yet they are trying to be obedient to what they do understand. That's an easier person to take on a journey than someone who says they have all the answers, but they are absolutely living in defiance to what they say they believe. And so the ultimate authority for us is the king. And, um, and, and the last one, I'll just go this, I'll get some conclusions. We'll ask some questions, but look, look at obedience. This group, there's no orthodoxy, which means right teaching, no orthopraxy, which means right practice, neither. This group here, there's usually orthodoxy, but there's no very little orthopraxy. There's right, right teaching, but right practice is suspect often. Here, we have no orthodoxy, but sometimes we have orthopraxy. But I think where power comes is here, when we have orthodoxy and orthopraxy put together. And, um, and so I'm going to draw some conclusions on this, and then you guys can uh, we'll just do some discussion. But first of all, these people here, look, go ahead and yeah, click it a couple times. These people here look at that group of people over there, and they find their worldview as immature. As, as unhelpful, as unattractive. So there's something going on in their spirit. They're seeing needs around them. They're seeing needs around the world. And they're going, you just spent $50 million for a worship center. I don't get it. I do not get it. How many people would we keep alive with $50 million? 
you've got a water fountain that is coming down there and you just spent a million dollars on it. What would have happened if that was used for a more important thing? And so I've had lots of conversations and I'm sure you've had lots of conversations with people who are here. And when they, they see you, they, they pigeonhole you and they think this is what you are. Because this is kind of how the church has marketed itself for a little while now. And, uh, and it's, in, it's not helpful. Number two is kingdom seekers respond when they see this. Because there's this, this, this homing pitch, in, and they, they actually found a home. They see what you're doing here, and, uh, and, and they, they really want to be a part of that. It's like um, they, don't, they don't understand it, they, don't, they haven't seen it before, and, and it's cool. So for church planners, this is what I do. I spend so much time painting this picture of what this looks like. Fleshing this out. What does this look like as a church plant? And, and differentiating myself from what we, what we are, are trained to be involved in. Because one nauseates many people in this group here, and one attracts many of the people here. And, uh, and so you're, you're very careful in, in what you do that. Number three is, I find a draft moving its way this way. So these people, when they, when they uh, respond to Jesus Christ, they, they find themselves over here. And then there's people over here. It's a husband or a sister or a mother. That, and you watch this draft kind of move this way. These people aren't going to go here because it is just like way too weird. And so they might say, I need to get cleaned up and pop up and go to church here. But um, usually what happens is when this person moves here, then these relationships move over here and there's questioning. And you begin to watch this migration pattern move its way to the right and up, to the right and up, to the right and up. And as a church planter, you can begin to cultivate that, that path. And you can begin to do things to help these people bring those people over, over here. And you begin to watch that, that pattern that goes there. Next, there's going to be some people, when you stake out this ground, there's going to be some people, some Joseph of Arimathea's and some Nicodemus's that say, you know, I knew what we're doing was wrong. And, uh, and I love what you're doing. And can I be a part of that? And if you're a new church plant, like the last church I planted, we didn't let Christians in. We really honestly didn't. I tell that story sometime. But, but um, we honestly didn't. And because uh, the church I planned before that, we had 12 Christian families. I got them to sign this statement saying, we're a church for the unchurched, church for every believer's ministry, church for the glory of God, had things under each one of those things. They, oh yeah, sounds exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and all of a sudden we start executing the plan. They go, wait, 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 wait. What about my, what about, what about my needs? What about me? And, um, and I had this constant fight with them. And so I said, okay, not doing that no more. <laughs> now we're starting church with lost people. That works. It's amazing. And, um, and so if you are bringing a lot of these people over here, you better have a pretty good screen. Because they, they might say the right stuff. But deep, deep down, you're going to have some battles ahead of you. And, um, and so, so many ways to look at this. If you want to sort of find a medium ground, I'm not really, a, but a medium ground is, is ratios. Um, if you really want to 
Imagine Jesus going to Samaria, meeting the Samaritan woman, all of a sudden the Samaritan woman's family and friends and everybody's coming. And, you know, who knows what happened to Samaria after that. The re the, one of the reasons it has power is because that Samaritan woman um, was so connected to so many people. When you start a church with a bunch of Christians, they're not connected to lost people. Most are, are afraid of lost people. Most have never led anyone to Christ in their entire life or years and years since it's happened. And they don't necessarily believe that evangelism even works. And, uh, and so there's your base for planting your church. It sucks. It's, it's hard to do anything with that. And, um, and then you think about ratios and you go, okay, we're, you know, this, this is our team. We're, this, this is going to be one missional community. This is going to be one missional community here. All right. Um, now we're going to have some lost people here. Okay. And so we can't act smart. We have to act dumb. And so we're going to, you know, not talk about the Bible we're, like we know. We're going to have a Bible. We're going to say, turn to page 42. Make them feel comfortable. Turn page 42. Everybody, oh, yeah, okay. We start going through this. Page 42. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then one wise guy says, you know, that reminds me in John chapter 4 when, and then the rest of us start nodding our heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, that person realizes they're a kindergartner in a college class. And, um, and they bounce off. They don't stick at high, high rates at all. Unless they're very spiritually hungry or very extroverted and kind of socially inept, they will usually leave. And um, I wasn't putting extroverted and socially inept together, by the way. And, um, and so just, just be very, very careful. If you can keep your ratios tilted towards the community, you're going to do yourself a favor. If, uh, if the church that you're starting looks like the community you're trying to reach, huh, you're, you're, you're in for an exciting future. If the church that you're starting looks like the church you came from, it's going to be tough. Number five, and I won't spend much time here, but this, this is what we celebrate. Here's where the attaboys come from most of the time. How many you have? Nickels, noses, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, uh, and so, as, as a leadership, a new culture has to be, this is what we celebrate, this stuff here. And it's, it's different. And, uh, and so you have to create a different culture. Because when I get with a group of church planners or pastors, you can count to 10 on a conversation. So how are things going? That's code for... How many you're running, right? And uh, and and we we start talking. By the way, whenever we ask that question, how many you're running, we're really saying how many you benched, right? Because we're really not running many people at all. We're just sort of keeping them there. They're they're moving, but um, and ultimately, this pe this group of people only finds the thing. They don't, still haven't found what I'm looking for until they meet Jesus. And, um, and then things start to happen. And so we have a few minutes, very few. <laughs> um, but do you have any challenges or clarif clarifications or thoughts? Yeah. Question. Um, back when you were talking about the, you know, the church people, you know, because as a planter, you, you sometimes those people just kind of hang around you and then, oh, yeah, what you're doing is so cool. Yeah. I just want to join in. Um, did you just, it, when that happens, the best way to handle that perhaps is to, to give them mission, you know, get them busy, 
you know, doing oh. things in, in some ways and not so much. Yeah, and I speak in them. hyperbole. I mean, yeah. many of them are a blessing. Many yes. of them aren't. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, if people, I mean, if people can get a take, like once you sort of learn, learn something up here, it's hard to live here anymore. Right. right. And, um, and so if you can give them a taste of what the kingdom living is about and they get it, they go, oh, shoot, this is awesome. But, but if, if all they really want is, is a Sunday morning thing that sounds like the right thing, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it uses all the new cool ter terms that we're supposed to use, but doesn't actually do it. You know, that's probably what they're really wanting in many cases. So if you can get them to experience it, it's different for sure. Yes? What about, what about, what about um, like organizational structures and becoming kind of a kingdom expanding? What, what works well trend-wise? That's a very vast Yeah, yeah. So can I answer that question in the next session? Sure. I think I will. Because I, I, it'll take me a little more to unpack it. And, um, and I plan on unpacking it. I, so, to provide some context. So, I, I understand that words have power and having the right linguistics and terminology and being able to identify certain characteristics in this ecosystem of secular, secular people. I get it. What I'm finding in my own personal ministry is that if you don't have corresponding structures that are embedded to handle these kind of um, personality types and gorgeous mindsets in general, like it winds up creating a massive back door hmm. in general because you wind up re reproducing you know, from the old church or or, or, or homeostasis happens. Homeostasis, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Homeostasis is basically scientific term for the place that takes the least amount of energy to maintain and and so it's usually a, a rut or a normality that that we sort of all go back to and uh, any other thoughts or questions this is i guess more a personal question but i, I came across your book kingdom matrix when i was a in a rural traditional church in north carolina huh. and yours yours was the first that frame things that I thought, oh, this is what you know, hmm. uh, I want or whatever. Um, did you have a, was it all this that you now sort of do? Is this, was this, did you read something or was it born out of an experience or a combination or how did that come Yeah, so, so I had the privilege of growing up, oh, let's be real quick, in Saskatchewan, and Henry Blackaby was my pastor, if you ever done Experiencing God or anything like that, heard about that. And so normal in that culture was surrendering to ministry. That's kind of the way we thought of it. And, and um, going and starting a church in a town or a community. Or that. So that just happened normally. And, um, and then, and it was never nice. It was never slick. It was never polished. It was always homemade and fuddy-duddy. And, um, and I didn't realize how powerful the thing was that I was involved in growing up. And, um, and then I, I went to university, went to seminary and saw, I went to, you know, Saddleback and I saw that, you know, I saw all the other stuff. I thought, shoot, this is where it's at. And, um, and I started reproducing that idea and realizing, man, you know, very quickly I realized this is not it. This is the opposite of it. And, um, and so I went back to my roots, retraced my roots. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir.
I was thinking in the matrix you just showed the kingdom seekers and, and the established churches. Um, the, the struggle I have is the dynamic of the Holy Spirit because you, you mentioned his presence. And so I was thinking, how do you maintain and sustain that that power mm -hmm. that transforms the church from that settled environment to kingdom seekers again? It's a great question. This is such a great question because, and, and I got one minute to answer it. Um, really, the, the, the life that we're talking about in that top right quadrant is it, it forces you to the, the, the biblical meta-narrative. If, if, if it's something to write down if you don't know this. The biblical meta-narrative is weakness. Old Testament, New Testament. Weakness, 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 weakness. And... Um, even Jesus himself, weak, you know, the weakest position, weak, you know, just everything is weakness. And, and so in that top right quadrant, it forces you to weakness. Like we, we do spiritual gift inventories that are, again, opposite of what the Bible teaches us. They, they take human traits and give spiritual endowments to them. And would you, would you more likely in situation one do A, B, or C? Oh, B. And you do a hundred of those and you talk about what you would more likely do in your flesh. And then we call it a spiritual gift. And, um, and say, you go do that. You, you stay in your comfort zone. You run in that. That is the opposite of, of what, what we're talking about. The kingdom of God is the Holy Spirit speaks to me and asks me to do something silly. And I do the silly thing and I see God work. And so it's, it's not like I'm, I just came from all these church planters who many of them um, planting illegally and can get caught. And, and the power of what's going on, the miraculous and the, everything that's going on all around them, we don't see in here very often. Church planters are, I think, in North America, is the ones who get to see the power of God the most in North America. Because in my experience, my kids love Jesus because, and serve Him because we took steps of faith as a family. We didn't know how it was going to happen, but we knew God wanted us to do it. We took the step of faith. God did it. And they become their stories, right? And they become the church's stories. And um, so you're right. The Holy Spirit is God working through the weakness of His people as they surrender. And brand expander, there is no surrender. It's, it's this, you know. So we got to go. So thanks, guys. Yeah.